Hey everyone, welcome to the Faith Chapel podcast. We are so glad to have you join us. Faith Chapel exists to help people follow Jesus, be transformed by Jesus, and be on mission with Jesus. No matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you're welcome here. If you have any questions about who we are or what you hear, you can visit faithchapel.cc or email podcast at faithchapel.cc. We'd love to hear from you. All right, let's dive into this week's message. We're looking at this thread that weaves its way through the entire Bible, and it's just this one word. It's Messiah. Messiah. Now, what is Messiah? <clears throat> well, Messiah is a Hebrew word that means promised one. Last week, we looked at the very first time this idea that God would one day send someone who would be promised and would be uh, have the capacity and power to do something significant in the world, it comes out of Genesis 3.15 in the midst of this horrible situation where uh, human freedom has led to sin and rebellion against God and the world has changed and human relations are changed and sin enters the human race. God gives this glimmer of hope. He looks at Eve and he says, listen, Eve, through you one day, one will be born who will, this is the term he uses, will be able to crush the head of the serpent. God says one day what has been broken will be fixed through Eve. And so that is our first hint at this concept of Messiah. And then over 400 times in the Old Testament, the word Messiah is used. That is frequent, that is ongoing. And here's what Messiah meant to the Jewish people. They were constantly living in times of oppression. Uh, we enjoy incredible liberty here in this country. Imagine living in a place that had been occupied by uh, Babylonians and Persians and Assyrians and Greeks and Romans, and it goes on and on and on, and there's always somebody that is oppressing you, and there's someone who is moving you from freedom to slavery. There's someone who is taxing you. There's someone determining what you can worship and how you can worship. And so this longing is deep within the Jewish psyche, hoping for a Messiah. Then in the New Testament, there's a Greek word that they use to explain the concept of Messiah. It's the term Christ. Christ in Greek means anointed one. And the term Christ is used over 500 times in the New Testament. It's this ongoing theme that someone would come to save humanity. And that's what Christmas is about. It's about the coming of the Messiah. But there's a bit of confusion here, and we're going to look at a couple of questions. When it comes to the Messiah, the promised one, uh, two things I want to address. One would be this reality that Jesus is not the only person who's claimed to be the Messiah. There are hundreds, well over 500 people who have claimed to be the Messiah. Some of them have had very minimal impact, some of them significant impact. Some of them have been deluded. Some of them, we don't know what their motivations are. Um, and then here's the second question, which I, when you read the New Testament, you got to walk away thinking about this. Why were there so few people in the first century who saw Jesus, who heard Jesus, who experienced Jesus? Why were there probably no more than 500 people who originally identified him as the Messiah? It would take hundreds of years for the Roman Empire, at least a third of the Roman Empire, 330 years later, believes that Jesus is the Messiah. 
But in Jesus' context, there's just a few hundred that believe he's the Messiah. So what's behind that? First, I want to take a moment and I just want to talk about false messiahs. Why were there so many people that claimed to be Messiah? Well, Jesus warned people in Matthew chapter 24, one of the last discourses he has with his disciples or followers. In Matthew 24, he says this, he gives them a warning about false messiahs. Matthew 24, at that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, the promised one, or there he is, Jesus says, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. I want to pause there for a moment. So even Jesus says this, there will be some people who will have some sort of supernatural power, but it's not from God who will come along and claim to be the Messiah and they will do things that are inexplicable. And it will deceive people, even people who are, they're, they're part of God's scheme of what he's doing in the world. See, I have told you ahead of time. So Jesus gives this warning. Now, I don't think it would be important or profitable for us to go through hundreds of different people who have claimed to be Messiah. But I just wanna go through three, probably the three that had the most impact on Jewish society. And then look at the traits that they all had in common. Here's the first, Bar Kokhba, Bar Kokhba. About 130 AD, he comes to a place of prominence and he proves himself to be a brilliant military leader and developer of intrigue and thought and philosophy. Because you have the Roman Empire, which is massive and powerful, and he develops this whole guerrilla warfare mentality, and he leads Jewish people on these exploits where they will attack Roman outposts that are um, hard to protect. And from 130 to 135 AD, he begins to gain more and more momentum, and the people are ripe. They are simmering and seething because in 70 AD, Rome had marched into Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, which was the hub of their civilization. So their place where they came to worship, their place where they culturally came together, it has been destroyed. And so the people are living without a temple. It's unthinkable. And so Bar Kokhba, he gathers people and they start these little guerrilla wars against Rome. In 135 AD, he believes that he has enough power and multiple rabbis or teachers have begun to declare that Bar Kokhba is the Messiah. He goes head to head against Rome. 500,000 Jewish people die. They're killed. Rome marches in an additional 250,000 troops and countless hundreds of thousands are marched away and taken into captivity. It's the end of his messianic moment. The next one who gained a lot of momentum was the mid fifth century. His name was Moses of Crete. He grows up in an exiled province of Crete. He's a Jewish man. And he declares that he has association with Moses of the Old Testament, Moses who stood in front of the Red Sea. He begins to teach, he begins to gain momentum. He gains somewhere around 19,000 followers who believe in his teachings this much that Moses of Crete says, walk with me into the ocean and God will part the ocean and we will walk into a new promised land. And he takes somewhere around 19,000 of his followers, they walk into the ocean and about 11,000 of them drown in the ocean. It's this tragic end. 
where the parting of the sea doesn't happen and there's no promised land. The one who had the most significant impact numerically would be Shabbatai Zevi. This is during the Ottoman Empire. So Islam has taken over what we call Europe today. And Shabbatai Zevi begins, he's incredibly charismatic and he travels from place to place with these interesting teachings and it said that he performed miracles that no one could explain and soon you have tens of thousands of people supporting him he's declaring himself as the messiah but years into it he's arrested by uh, the islamic governing people they put him in a prison and they give him two options you convert to islam or you die he and tens of thousands of his followers convert to islam they abandon the hope that he was the Messiah and he's erased from history. So this is, this is going on and on. I could tell you hundreds of these stories that involve hundreds of thousands of people being deceived. This desire for a Messiah is so palpable that during World War II and the, the horrific realities of concentration camps, it's recorded that many of the prisoners who were marching towards their death would pray this prayer. I actually want to read it to you. It's, it's still deep within them. I believe with perfect faith in the coming of the Messiah. And though he may tarry, yet still I believe. It's this hope in the midst of devastation, in the midst of loss and oppression and he may not have come in time for me, yet I still believe. So there's this hope and there's been misplaced hope and false messiahs. And Jesus warned us about that. So what are some of the common traits of these false messiahs? I just want to walk through these briefly. Because you'll see they're different people from different eras. I mean, you have people even very recently in the David Koresh's who claim to be a messiah. But here's what they share in common. Number one. They're ambitious individuals with no accountability. They, Jesus lived under this idea. He, he was accountable to the Roman government. <laughs> he was always accountable to his father. He was accountable to the text, the scripture. But these individuals, they say, like, the rules don't apply to me. I'm different. I'm unique. They're incredibly ambitious. Number two, false messiahs share this. They're teachers of esoteric, so vague or hard to realize, esoteric knowledge available only to an elite group. All of these false messiahs come to me. I have a truth that no one else has. And you are selected to know this truth. As opposed to the teachings of Jesus, who did he teach to? Anybody who would listen. And how did he teach? He taught through stories and parables he, he, he did everything he could to help people understand who he was and what God was really like. So it's not a select group. Jesus said, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden. Number three, false messiahs share this trait. They focus on political and military ambitions. Every one of them, they're focused on power and influence. They're focusing on strength and dominance. Jesus, on the other hand, what does he do? He never runs for office. He never addresses Rome. He's never looking for political or military influence. In fact, when he's being arrested, Peter pulls out a sword to defend Jesus. And what does Jesus say to him? Peter, sheathe your sword. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. 
Peter, that's not why I came. I didn't come for upheaval and I didn't come to create a new governmental system. I came for something much more important. The last trait that all false messiahs have is a reliance on violence. Every one of them. You just find that they use violence, which is in such opposition to Jesus, who refused violence, who told people to love their enemies and to forgive those who had offended them. Jesus never moved towards violence. He was a man of incredible peace. So there's false messiahs. There will be yet to this day. And so we have to understand that they have traits that are very different than the person of Jesus. So here's the second question I want to address. Why did so few Jewish people in the first century identify Jesus as the Messiah? Just maybe 500 at his ascension? Well, I think there's two main reasons for this, but there's two types of scriptures. Remember those 400 scriptures in the Old Testament that talk about the Messiah? It's hundreds of prophecies. Well, they kind of fall into two camps. And the first camp that these scriptures fall into talk about hope and restoration. They talk about healing, talk about taking everything that's unjust and making it right. I'll give you an example of this, and there will be hundreds of others. This is from the book of Daniel chapter 7. It's written during a time where, once again, Israel is... They've been uh, misplaced. They've been taken to a new place. They've been under the thumb of Babylon and Persia. And God gives Daniel a vision of the future. And this is what he says. In my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days. That's a, a phrase for God himself. And was led into his presence. He was given authority glory and sovereign power. That means divine power. And all nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. His dominion is everlasting, dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And so when you're an oppressed people group and you read about the Messiah, that's very appealing, isn't it? <laughs> like, that's somebody who's stronger than Persia, Assyria, Rome, Greece, whoever it might be. That's what we want. We want someone who has more power. We have, want someone who can make what's wrong right. So many of the messianic prophecies speak about Jesus in this way. And when he didn't overthrow Rome, they came to the conclusion he wasn't the Messiah. However, there's a whole different set of prophecies about the Messiah. And I want to read a few of them to you. There, there's a conglomeration of these prophecies in the book of Isaiah. And they paint a very different picture of the Messiah. It's from Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted. Whoa, 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 whoa. Do you want your Messiah to be oppressed or to be the oppressor? Do you want him to afflict punishment on the wicked? Or do you want him to be afflicted? So he was oppressed and the Messiah was afflicted, yet they, he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter as a former 4-H member. You do not want your Messiah to be represented by a lamb. They are vulnerable and weak and dumb as rocks, right? 
What, what kind of Messiah is this? Goes on, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. No, we, we want him to proclaim truth. We want him to proclaim sentencing on everything that's wrong. Matthew says this is how Jesus fulfilled that type of messianic prophecy. When he was accused by the chief priests and when the elders and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they're bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Jesus said, I didn't come here to defend myself. I didn't come here to pronounce judgment on Rome. I came here to be afflicted and to be oppressed. Um, Isaiah, earlier in the chapter, says this. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. It's wild thought if you're looking for a Messiah, that Messiah would step in and he's pierced and he's crushed and he's punished for me. He willingly takes it on himself and by his wounds we are healed. And then you could go back to Matthew and you'll read the equivalent of this. That he's, he's beaten, he's spit upon, he's punished, he's mocked by the Roman soldiers and then led to the point of crucifixion. So you have these two different themes of Messiah happening and it becomes incredibly confusing. But if you're oppressed, what do you want? You want the victor. You don't want this suffering servant. So that leads us then to, uh, I just want to give you a few thoughts on Jesus as the Messiah, what he did, what he came for. Number one, understanding what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah, we have to understand that the New Testament divides human history into these three parts, okay? Into three different parts. So I'm going to show you a timeline. This is how the Bible lays out time for us. There is this time before Jesus. It's the age of the law. It's the time in human history where we are living in isolation from our creator in sin rules and reigns. And the only hope that human beings have is to their best of their ability to obey, to submit, to sacrifice, to do everything that the law of Moses commands. And so that is the effort that human beings have to make is we're still living in just like Adam and Eve, shame, we're hiding from God. But if I could put these laws, if I could clean up my own life, maybe there's a way that I could move back towards Eden. I could move back to a place where I'm at harmony with my creator. This is the age of the law or the time that was, the Bible calls it. And then what we'll celebrate in just a couple of weeks is the arrival of Jesus as the Messiah. And in this life, he divides history. Our calendars even say BC to AD. And he lives this life and he willingly is crushed and afflicted. And he absorbs into himself the punishment that was meant for all of us. And he wins a victory that no one was anticipating. 
It's the victory of the heart. And so now, human beings can walk with their God once again. Forgiveness is possible. I don't have to be filled with shame and angst and fear of God. What Jesus does upon the cross is he lives the life that no one had been able to live. He introduces himself to the human condition and lives this perfect life. So now we live in this age. We live in this age. And the question is, well, are we here or are we here? I don't know. I wish I could tell you. I do know this, that for 2,000 years, the church has always thought, oh, we're right at the end, right? We've always thought that. I'm not sure where we're at. But this is an age where a victory has been won, and the victory is this. Um, New Testament calls this the church age, where Jesus is now living his life through his people. And he's doing his work through his people. And he's restoring hearts and he's bringing freedom from addiction and he's bringing us to places where we can begin to forgive and and, and love the way that he forgave and the way that he loved. However, the world's not totally fixed yet, is it? So it says that the Messiah returns a second time. And this second time, so when we read these prophecies written during this period of time, some of them point to his first arrival. Some of them, like the one we read from Daniel, point towards his second arrival. Because here's the description the Bible has about the second arrival of the Messiah. A theological term is he will this time come in his undiminished glory. Revelation paints him as one who comes with fire from his eyes, who's riding a white horse and has a sword in his hand. And he comes to deal with injustice. And he comes to deal with hatred. And he comes to eliminate oppression. He comes to make the world new. This revelation, the last two chapters in the Bible, this is where God says, I make all things new. There will be no more crying or pain or sickness for the old order of things is finished. He'll make it all new. But the confusion has been these prophecies speak about his first coming and some of them speak about his second coming. Let me give you an example of this. I'm gonna try to do this without getting emotional. Uh, Last night, my wife and I got a call from a family here at this church, uh, dear friends, um, woman who's far too young, has two teenage sons, been fighting cancer for a couple years. Walking to their home late last night, um, her physical body has died. But there's there's something exceptional. I mean, it, it's everything about it speaks of tragedy and pain. It's been two years of fighting this disease called cancer. However, however, in the room, she's at peace. Her kids are at peace. Her friends are at peace. Her mom and dad are at peace. Why? Because Jesus won this battle. That she wasn't alone. And she didn't die in isolation from God. She was completely surrendered. He was working in her midst. He had been working with her through tragedy and pain. She'd been through so much. And there's this profound sense that even though the room is filled with grief, there's, there's this, it's awe. It, it's, 
We're not worried. Jesus came in the victory he won the first time 2,000 years ago, dealt with that. But Jesus is going to come a second time. You know what he's going to do? He's going to deal with cancer. He's going to end it. She was alive. She was spiritually vibrant. She's with her creator. But when Jesus comes a second time, there's no more cancer. It's when he comes as the victor. So if I can understand this timeline, it begins, me, it begins to help me understand what this whole push and theme, 900 mentions of Messiah are all about. Many of them are here. We're somewhere here, right? In the days ahead, this is the, the age to come is what the New Testament calls this. This age to come where uh, Isaiah, lions lay down next to lambs. Children play near the, the viper and they're not harmed. Where, where there's peace and tranquility and restoration. Number two, let's talk a little bit about this Messiah concept. If you want to understand Messiah, understand that suffering servant first, conquering king in the future. So the first time he comes, he suffers. He doesn't defeat Rome and he doesn't defeat oppression. He doesn't kill cancer. He suffers for us to save us. The next time he comes, he conquers. Number three, understanding Messiah. If you had nothing else, just think this way. He came, he is coming. So when we celebrate Christmas, what are we doing? Well, in part, we are celebrating and remembering the epiphany or appearing of the Messiah to planet earth. So we celebrate. That's why we'll sing songs and we'll gather in this room and people all over the world for 2000 years have been celebrating the arrival, the birth of Jesus Christ, because we're remembering, but we have something else to hope for. He is coming. His second advent or arrival, his second epiphany or appearing that we anticipate one day Messiah comes back. And when he comes back, he finishes the job. Thirdly, understanding Messiah. Here's some traits about Jesus the Messiah that help us as we read through these passages that have to do with him. Number one, Jesus the Messiah fought his battle through love and sacrifice, not violence and power. So everybody was anticipating violence and power. Be like King David. Conquer everything that's wrong. Take away my pain. Take away the oppressors. Jesus realized this. The deepest problem with humanity is not who's in power, not who has the weapons, because here's what can happen. You can get rid of the group that's in power and you can get rid of the oppressors and you put somebody else in their place and what happens to them? They become the oppressor, right? Because the problem is in here. The problem is selfishness. The problem is my hatred, my bias, my unkindness, everything that's broken within me. And so Jesus came he said, I could take away Rome and I could put you in power. And you know what you'd do? You would do what Rome's doing. What I came to do is fight a battle that's inside of here. And I'm going to win that battle through love and sacrifice. I'm going to win that battle by dying on a cross. Next thing about Jesus the Messiah, he conquered death and sin rather than kings and armies. So remember that Genesis 3.15, that early messianic reference that he crushed the head of the serpent. Jesus conquered death and sin. Now, 
It's still out there, right? But its power on me is over. That's why last night that room is filled with peace because the power of sin and death has been conquered. The serpent had to be crushed. And that's what Jesus did the first time he came. Jesus the Messiah focused on the interior realm, not the exterior realm. So everybody, everybody wanted him to focus on the exterior, right? Get rid of Herod and the corrupt Jewish leaders. Get rid of Pilate, the governor from Rome. Like if we could just get rid of all that. And Jesus kept through his teachings. He keeps coming back to this is the most important thing, the interior realm, which leads to the fourth aspect of the Messiah, which is this, he established an unseen kingdom, not a visible kingdom. So rather than creating this palace where he's in charge, Jesus talks over and over his teachings about his kingdom in front of Pilate. Pilate goes, so I hear you're the king of the Jews. Jesus says, if you say so, Pilate's like, well, uh, how are you king? And, and Jesus says this, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom isn't about power and influence and money. My kingdom is about taking a life that has been separated from its creator and has been living in shame and doing its best, but never doing enough. And my kingdom is about resurrecting the dead spirits within humanity and giving them life. And so my kingdom, my kingdom is a kingdom where there's forgiveness and there's hope and there's internal peace. Jesus came to establish a completely different kingdom than anyone anticipated. I want to close with this verse. Paul writes this to a group of friends as he is viewing just the history of the Messiah. He says this, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son. Just pause there for a moment. So I, I, don't, I don't think any of us know exactly all that this means, but there's this question. So why didn't God send the Messiah 3,000 years before he did? That would have been nice, right? <laughs> Good for them. God had been promising the moment of Messiah. Uh, here's, here's a couple of reasons why maybe Jesus came when he did. There's an empire that's in charge. And with the empire comes some negatives, but also come some benefits. It, it's, it's the first time in the history of the world where people from India to Portugal and people from Great Britain through North Africa I'll speak one language. I speak Greek. When Rome conquered Greece, everybody was already starting to speak Greek. And so they said, well, just keep speaking Greek. It, it was the one time, the first time in human history until just recent days where if God was going to come to earth and there was a story to tell, that story could spread throughout the Roman Empire because people actually understood each other. It's this set time where Rome, they called it the Pax Romana, the, the peace of Rome, where Paul could get on a boat and three times travel the entire world and plant churches in places that had no idea of who Jesus is or that there was even a Messiah. And he could do that because it was the first time where you were safe. 
that Rome kept you from piracy, that you could travel. It was the first time in human history that Rome had created paved roads from Rome to Great Britain where you could travel in complete safety. And so God is waiting for this moment when the set time had fully come. God sent his son, born of a woman. Again, this ongoing theme that this is God. He enters in. Joseph is not Jesus' biological father, but he's born under the law. He's born in that first time frame to redeem. Messiah came to buy me back. Those under the law that we might receive adoption. The Messiah came so that he could call people instead of slaves, he could call us sons and daughters. That he would create a new family, a new kingdom, a new dynamic with new ethics, with love as its hallmark, adoption to sonship, Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. Where's his kingdom? It's not out there. It's here. The spirit who calls out Abba, Father. Um, What does the word Abba mean? It's it's, uh, one of the very few words in the Bible that is Aramaic in its origins, which is a uh, hybrid of um, the Hebrew language and other languages around them. And here's what Abba means. Like the most literal translation you can get is the word daddy. The word daddy. With this God who's been so far off and we've been so afraid of, part of what Paul's saying this, that the Messiah changes the dynamic relationship between human beings and God. We're, we're afraid of him and have we done enough that he so, the Messiah so heals that process, creates a new Eden where you and I can look at God and call him this familiar term that a four-year-old will call his dad, daddy. That we would be in such a new world and a new realm that I can look at God And rather than quake in fear, understand that the Messiah took the affliction, took the transgressions, took everything onto himself to bring us into relationship with someone that we can call Daddy God. Daddy God. That's what the Messiah came to do. We hope that this helps you take your next step on your spiritual journey. If you'd like to get involved with the work and ministry of Faith Chapel, visit faithchapel.cc and click on Next Steps. If you'd like to speak to a pastor or connect with us in any way, email connect at faithchapel.cc. We look forward to connecting with you soon.